Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us for today's show. Um, Let's get right to the panel because we have a lot to talk about today. It's Wednesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is political reporter Greg Bluestein, the hardest working man in political show business. Uh, Greg, let's let people uh, behind the screen just briefly. uh, You said when you joined us before the show started, you've basically pulled an all-nighter because the author of a new book has a lot of work that just never seems to end. Yes? <laughs> There's a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, yes. Uh, and I've been getting through the, uh, the final edits, but my, what I'm, my, the book editor basically gave me a, a giant section of 160, well, I, I turned it from 160 to 188 pages of edits and told me a few days ago that, hey, it's due uh, today. And I had a pretty busy weekend and we had the Jewish holiday. And so I started working on it really in earnest last night. <laughs> this is uh, your book that people who listen to the show regularly know is uh, going to be published at some point in the near future about the Georgia election in uh, 2020, right? You got it. It's been real fun to go back and, and write a narrative about all the craziness that happened and is still happening in Georgia politics as, yeah. we, as we all talk about every, every day on your show. Yeah, I think we'll talk about the craziness today. Um, as you were uh, talking about your editor uh, uh, pushing you on these edits, watching everybody on WebEx, as I get to do, as we all get to do internally, I saw Professor Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. I saw you nodding. Andra, you can sympathize. You know the pressures that come to bear when you're trying to get a book published, uh, finished, right? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about my swollen ankles in my last book when I, like, you know, just sat for, like, a couple of days to do stuff, but I didn't get up and walk. Don't do that, Greg. Don't do that. It's not, good. It's not a good look at all. <laughs> well, we're glad you're with us today, Andra. Thank you very much. And we're joined by uh, uh, two public officials, or former public officials in one case, who we always, always appreciate giving us time to do the show. They are Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing well under the circumstances, and uh, we continue to stand in the gap and fighting uh, this deadly virus. But delighted to be with you this morning, Bill. Yeah, we, we really appreciate your being here. And Sam Olins uh, is back with us as well, the former attorney general of the state of Georgia. And prior to that, the uh, very, very a popular chair of the Cobb County Commission now and the uh, in the in the business of uh, the law as a partner at Denton's the world's largest law firm. Hi Sam. Hey, good morning Bill. Pleasure to be back here with my uh, partner uh, the CEO of DeKalb County. Um all right, well let's talk to uh, him for just a minute. Uh, Michael, uh, it, as we were getting set to do the show, Uh, Sam Olin's actually pointed out something that I had somehow missed in the paper this morning, but it does relate to the topic I'd like to take up first with all of you, which is how we're dealing with 
COVID, where that's headed, and the fallout from it. And in your case, um, the uh, AJCP says, here's the lead, the only Georgia County to... The only Georgia county to have its own eviction moratorium is also likely to extend a pandemic relief program for tenants and landlords through next spring. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman and the county's board of commissioners will soon decide uh, whether that uh, the coalition should be extended until March 31st, 2022. Uh, what's involved in that extension of the moratorium, Michael? Well, firstly, uh, you know, I just appreciate the decision by Chief Judge Arthur Jackson, who extended the moratorium so that we could continue to disperse uh, rental assistance uh, to keep people in their homes, but also to provide some relief to landlords in DeKalb County. Bill, we are distributing more than $1 million a week now in rental assistance, and so it's just an important step to prevent the spread of COVID-19. We just can't have thousands of people out on the street or in homeless shelters uh, at this particular point in time. And working with the Board of Commissioners, I just know we're gonna continue to do the right thing. But the unsung heroes in all of this, believe it or not, are landlords uh, who we have to work with every day uh, to have the partnership that protects homeowners or tenants uh, and some homeowners uh, during this crisis. So my hat's off to landlords who are working with us, compromising on the amounts owed so that we can protect families, particularly children. Um, according to the AJC piece, you have now spent over $6.8 million and helped something like 1,200 families during in this program. Uh, absolutely. And it's been very one of the more difficult programs to implement, to be honest with you, though. Uh, counties and jurisdictions, cities and others have really struggled with the tenant uh, 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 aid during the pandemic. We had to start from scratch, build a program. We had a cyber attack, an international criminal cyber attack hit us in March, overcome that, and then create a very com implement a very complex set of rules and regulations. But we've hit our stride. Uh, our uh, state and magistrate court judge, uh, Javon Hicks, is leading that effort. We're working with Atlanta Legal Aid and the Housing Authority. And it's been a great coalition. And it's been difficult, the most difficult of all the strategies we've implemented has been the landlord-tenant program. But we're making progress now, so I'm encouraged. Uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, it's important to point out that, that, that the problem with uh, uh, tenants losing their places to live because they can't pay the rent uh, and landlords who are not getting paid uh, is just one of so many side effects of COVID-19. The federal eviction moratorium, which was put in place by CDC, is no longer in effect. And it's interesting that DeKalb becomes the only county in the state to have its own program. But in a broader sense, Greg, uh, the pandemic, which is back in full force, we know has hit every segment of our society hard. There's been more than 26,000 positive cases in Metro Atlanta schools since school uh, began a couple of weeks ago. Hospitals are overrun. Um, we've had 27,000, almost 27,000 new cases or suspected cases of COVID since um, Saturday. And uh, the toll just keeps going, Greg. Yeah, and hospitals are strained. 
local governments are struggling with how to spend some of this money, how to distribute some of this coronavirus relief money. Um, and there's new pressures on the state uh, to take action. We know that the governor is against vaccine mandates and face face mask requirements and, and such, uh, but there's intermediary steps that he's getting pressure uh, to take um, right now. And, and that, that goes, that ranges from, um, you know, uh, uh, suspending elective surgeries, uh, finding new ways uh, to, to, to help with the staff shortages that hospitals are facing, um, and, and taking other um, steps to, to combat this vicious fourth wave. Um, we actually have a couple of Democrats from our congressional delegation who are calling on uh, the governor to, to issue an order suspending elective surgery in hospitals across the state, uh, primarily uh, to free up beds, but even more than that, to uh, to give some relief to the hospital staff, the nurses and aides and doctors themselves who are struggling with all of this. Um, Sam Olins, um, as you watch this unfold and you watch the pressure that Governor Kemp is under, it's do you have, you know, we've on this show on any number of occasions said, look, he is not Greg Abbott. He is not Ron DeSantis. He is not issuing draconian orders uh, like they have in their states. Um, but but do you worry that perhaps the state in general hasn't gone far enough in trying to protect us from the virus? So personally, yes. Uh, but from a political perspective, we have to understand that the governor is between a rock and a hard place. Uh, you know, I mean, once again, you've got uh, former President Trump coming to our state in a couple weeks. Um, I assume that um, former President Trump will continue his tirade against uh, our governor. Uh, and we have a very divided state, just like we have a very divided country. So, you know, noting, for instance, the emergency public hearing yesterday, the Cobb Douglas uh, Public Health Board um I think there's more that can be done, but we live in a world where, unfortunately, uh, a public health crisis has become a political movement. Andra, let me extend what, what Sam Olins just talked about. I, I was struck by a fundraising email that the Kemp campaign sent out um, Saturday. Um, and, and, and I, I'm going to read it to you and then ask you if you tell, think that this tells us what, what Sam Olins is saying really spells it out about as clearly as it can be uh, uh, done. Here it's, it says this, Friend, Georgians are, and then in all caps, fed up. So is Governor Kemp, and then, and he's taken bold action. That's underlined. And in, in boldface, he's empowered businesses to say no to any local orders to shut down or serve as the politicians' mask and vaccine police. Um, he's under fire now over this order, and we need your help to fight back. Governor Kemp is taking a stand for our businesses and our economic future. He needs everyone who backs him on this to step up and help. Show Governor Kemp that you have his back in this fight against pandemic politics. Does that really kind of tell us everything we need to know what uh, 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 Sam Olden just mentioned? 
Um, I mean, I, I think it does relate. I mean, I will say from a rhetorical standpoint, it's not particularly catchy, so I'm not quite sure that it resonates all that well. But the last time that I was on the show, like I mentioned that I thought he was going to fall back on sort of market-based solutions as we were talking about sort of businesses now issuing mandates. I think at the time we were talking about Delta's surcharge on insurance for people who refuse to get vaccinated. And, um, you know, at that time, I thought he was probably going to go back and sort of be more libertarian and market leaning and say, let the market kind of decide what works and what doesn't work. And so it seems to me by that fundraising appeal that he's leaning into uh, that particular posture. I think it's still a really tough posture to be in, not just because it's certainly not going to win him the support of Donald Trump. But keep in mind that when Donald Trump was in Alabama a couple of weeks ago and he even tepidly sort of, you know, endorsed the vaccine, he got booed. They're not leading from the front on this. They have a constituency that's opposed to this and would be opposed to it even if they probably stood on their heads and said that this was the right thing to do. So I think that's important to keep in mind. May I go back real quick to sort of uh, sort of the discussion about uh, sort of banning elective surgery in order to make room for COVID patients? Sure. Um, sure. I understand where that's coming from. But I would encourage these Democratic lawmakers to really be in conversation with hospitals because I'm not sure that they would actually agree that that's in their best interest and that they want to be empowered in that way. Um, You know, I have friends who are physicians who are not sort of in the hot field, so they're not in emergency medicine. They're not in pulmonology and respiratory care and all of those kinds of things. And so from one who had to shut down her practice temporarily because of the restrictions earlier, to other folks who are using sort of those elective surgeries as sort of the financial lifeblood, because it's really expensive to run COVID wings in hospitals. I'm just not sure that they would actually respond positively to that. And I think it's really important to just make sure that you're at least talking to hospital administrators and doctors just to see if that's actually what the right standard of care would be. I think they're doing the best that they can, and they're doing it under really challenging, not just physical circumstances, but also financial circumstances. I thought about this most throughout the night, Bill, believe it or not, whether or not I would even make the statement I'm getting ready to make. But, and Sam uh, Olins and I, we, we old guys, so we've been around. We would do snowmageddon and 9-11 and <laughs> Hurricane Katrina, all of those things. Let me tell you what political leaders are making the biggest mistake you can make in a crisis is that you try to filter this through a political lens. What you really have to come to position is people are dying, 10,000 Georgians, 1,029 DeKalb County residents, some, you know, uh, how many Americans, 600,000. So you have to start there. What can I do? What positions do I take that will mitigate and reduce the spread of the virus to save human life, irrespective of the politicians? The, the corona, this, this virus couldn't care less whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It, 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 has, it doesn't play partisan politics. So anyone and anytime you try to filter a strategy through a political lens to gain leverage, you're going to, number one, not succeed as well as you would hope. And number two, you're going to cause the senseless death of hundreds, if not thousands of people. So whatever needs to be done when I'm sitting I'm not thinking what's the Democratic strategy or the Republican strategy. Is what can we do to save the life of the Cap County residents and mitigate the spread? And the politics will take care of itself. And that every now and then it's a rare moment, Bill, but sometimes all you really have to do is the right thing, believe it or not. 
and the politics will follow. Um, Michael, let me follow up, though. I, I was looking at the other day at some data about the counties, and and you, who have been so present in, in urging uh, vaccinations in your county, you who have looked at um, every way you can address the social issues, you still have a very low rate in terms of numbers of people vaccinated in your own county. Your hospitals are uh, crowded as well. And, and so I'm wondering, given given that you in many ways might be an example of doing things as best you can, are still struggling, what that tells us. Well, first of all, you have to reject the general narrative. And to be honest with you about this, if you believe the general public narrative, say that people of color are hesitant to get the vaccine, you don't make the effort or invest the resources to actually see as to whether or not that particular narrative is true. Uh, you know that two weeks ago we had a vaccination event and 2,500 plus people showed up. Mm -hmm. The point is you can't believe what supposedly smart people are always telling you as it relates to human behavior. And the bottom line is this, is one life. And, and I, we, we're working to get the numbers up, but this is what I say to my folks privately. How many human beings actually get a chance to save one life? And if somehow or another we can actually impact or save or protect one life, everything we do is worth it. We want the uh, percentages to go up, but you got to start with one life, one arm, uh, one shot. Because otherwise you never get there. You become so overwhelmed by the immensity of the challenge that you don't try. And that is the fear that I have that we become so uh, indoctrinated that the challenge is so great that there are opportunities to actually impact the outcome and we're not taking them. Okay, thank you for that. Greg Bluestein, let me go back to that fundraising email. Um, it struck me that that, um, that boast that Governor Kemp is saying no to any local orders to shut down or serve as a politician's mask and vaccine police um, does tell us what, again, Sam Olins was talking about, which is this, this is politics at play here. The governor is walking a very, very thin line in figuring out uh, just what position he takes on dealing with the virus. Yeah, what's weighing heavily on his mind is the runoffs, is the fact that it's it's not just a Republican primary challenge he has to worry about. It's the fact that hundreds of thousands of Republicans could stay home rather than vote for him because of, of the Donald Trump uh, uh, fury aimed at him. Um, and he's trying to do anything he can not to alienate those those conservatives. And when you're going to rallies, when you're going to <laughs> events like I do around the state, it is one of the first things that comes up in, in the Republican rhetoric is that they're against vaccine mandates and, and mask requirements. And so... Um, Governor Kemp is, you know, and this is a stance he take. He has not taken recently, right? This was the stance he took last year, um, early last year, saying that he didn't want to uh, adopt them a statewide mask requirement because he thought the government telling people what to do would only backfire, and and lead to more uh, backlash. Um, and so, but it is one of the first things you hear, not just from the governor, but around the state from candidates up and down the ticket, is that they're against these sort of government requirements and they'll only do more harm than good and only engender more antipathy towards the government. 
Um, Sam Olins, if I could ask uh, you to start us off on just another aspect of what the virus has um, done. Um, we know that the federal uh, unemployment benefits, the additional $300 that the feds have thrown in be, in, in their pandemic relief package, are uh, running out. Um, and, and a rationale for not continuing to extend them, and those who were opposed to them, um, may, to, may seem to have made some sense in a way that people who got expanded job benefits um, were less likely to go out and look for work. But the Wall Street Journal uh, published a piece the other day which suggested that, that, that the states that have eliminated that additional $300 have really not seen any additional growth in uh, uh, people getting jobs over the states uh, that have continued it. Non-farm payrolls, according to the journey, rose like 1.3% from July to April in the 25 states that ended the benefits and 1.37 in the other 25 states that uh, uh, went ahead and uh, uh, continued the benefits. So there too, it, it, the, what might seem like a rational idea it seems in the long run to have not really proven to be the case, Sam. Well, first first of all, with all due deference, there's been no long run. Uh, from an economic perspective, one month is irrelevant. So um, I think uh, folks are, of course, quick to write uh, because that's their job. But one month does not make an economic analysis of uh, two you now have the child tax credit checks that are coming in. You have increased dollars for SNAP. So you have some other dollars flowing into some families. But I think more importantly, you have fear that the more people you run into a day, the more apt you are to acquire COVID. I mean, let, let's, face, let's face it. I mean, Mike, you're in the public every day. I'm sure people call you or email you daily that in the last week they acquired COVID. Uh, I'm hearing more and more people, I'm taking more and more calls that they have COVID, that their relative or their friend has COVID. And I think at the end of the day, more importantly than an extra $300 is fear that they're going to get COVID returning to work in those settings where they're among so many people. Andra? You know, I mean, I, I do think that this requires more study and it's going to require something where we do control for a number of factors that might, that the Wall Street Journal might not have accounted for. At the same time, I think what the bigger problem here is understanding sort of the difference between personal problems and structural problems. So, so states that ended uh, the extra benefits for uh, those who were unemployed pretty much did so in the spirit of these people are lazy and just need an incentive to work, right? And we're going to take it away from them to make it easier for them without recognizing that that decision to not work was actually being made because of some exogenous structural factors that were often beyond folks' control. So not just the fear of, of, of the virus, which I think is completely legitimate and shouldn't be discounted, but also there were issues related to child care. So to end that during a period where child care isn't going to be available for people is really going to count people out. So I think sort of the bigger test is to look at where unemployment is by the end of the year. The virus is still going to be prevalent and people are going to have health reasons to not want to go to work. But especially as kids are back in school, assuming they can stay in school, 
I think there'll be a big question about whether or not we see parents who are more likely to return to work because they have more consistent child care arrangements than they had this time six months ago. I do have to say the Wall Street Journal in that article, they themselves said this does require more study to confirm what both you and Sam Olin said. It was an initial finding that made raised some questions uh, about whether people were not going back to work because of that additional $300. Michael, you wanted to weigh in. No, I'm just agreeing with Sam and Professor Gillespie. I mean, one month is not a trend. And then it was a lagging indicator. Uh, by the time we actually saw those employment statistics, they were dated because they were for a previous 30-day period. Uh, one of the things that COVID has taught me and all political leaders, and I guess all of us, is that you have to humble yourself. The one thing, Bill, I'm waiting is for one leader to say, I don't know what this means. Uh, there is no, And the scientists, for that matter. One of the problems has been that some of the scientists and the doctors have stepped forward in the absolute. You, you will no longer need masks if you get a vaccination. Then, oh, no, that's not true. The point is, it's a novel virus, which means that it hadn't happened before. There is no playbook. And prognosticators and politicians need to step back from the edge of knowing all things when, in fact, we are actually learning this as we go. All right. Um, we will obviously continue to keep our eye on uh, the virus and the reaction to it from political leaders as well as public health officials uh, moving forward. Uh, Greg Bluestein, let's move on. Um, Donald Trump, you've pointed out to us already, is going to be in the state later this month. He'll be down at, in Perry, Georgia. Do we expect that's going to be the first time we see Herschel Walker on a stage as a declared candidate for the U.S. Senate or Greg Bluestein this Saturday. The Bulldogs play uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham at home. Might we see him there? Um, you know, that's a great question. I haven't gotten a clear answer on when his first event will be. I know he's planning to do listening sessions. He might go back to uh, East Georgia around his hometown and have events. There's a, there's a lot of things that that are sort of percolating out there in terms of Herschel Walker. Um, but I also expect him to be um, front and center at UGA football games. And just over the weekend, he was on Fox Fox Sports talking about, you know, uh, the, the big opening weekend in college football. So it's going to be Fox News football and fundraisers for him. All right. I, I wanted to ask that question uh, before we take a break, because it, it'll lead into a little bit more talk about that uh, Republican Senate race against Raphael Warnock uh, that we're watching unfold. We'll do that and take up a lot more issues after we pause for these messages. Professor Andre Gillespie, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, former State Attorney General Sam Owens, and the AJC's Greg Bluestein on today's show. Um, Sam, I just mentioned Herschel Walker briefly before the break. Um, with him now uh, in the race, uh, it, where do, where do you, as a Republican, um, what do you see about this race in terms of Latham Sandler, Sadler, Kelvin King, Gary Black? I mean, how do they possibly compete against the star power of Herschel Walker with Donald Trump in his corner, which is a good thing for most Republicans? Okay, so first, let's uh, 
acknowledge that uh, I'm an old-fashioned Republican uh, more than uh, what many would assume is the new Republican Party. So I, I believe in limited government, low taxes. I also agree in helping people. I, I, I acknowledge I was a compassionate and am a compassionate conservative, uh, but I don't necessarily want to be thrown in in the current world of uh, party politics. You know, I think the interesting uh, issue, Bill, is frankly how uh, how Gary Black is handling it. He is aggressively coming out and saying, uh, I don't know who Herschel Walker is uh, off a of football field, and darn it, I've been a longtime conservative, and I deserve and want your vote. Uh, and I think that that politically was a really bright move, because if you're just going to sit there and and be quiet or only talk uh, to, to your friends like that, then your race is over. So I, I give Gary Black a lot of credit for having the guts to confront a Herschel Walker. I'm reminded of Eric Erickson's uh, statement that uh, all the Republicans he knows thinks that Herschel wins the nomination and all the Republicans he knows thinks that Herschel loses to Warnock in the general. Um, so I, I think at a given point, um, there needs to be a discussion about do they have a candidate that they believe can beat Reverend Warnock. Uh, and I continue to believe that uh, Senator Warnock uh, is going to be very difficult to uh, to defeat. So if, if, if I were Gary Black or Latham Sadler or Kelvin King, the way that I would try to beat them is two-pronged. So the first thing and foremost uh, is their field operations have to be superior. They're going to have to be on doors. They're going to have to be counting votes as they go along. So there's a target number of votes that one would need in order to win a Republican primary in the state. They need to go find them. They need to knock on doors, make phone calls, figure out who's on their side, and then make sure that they get them out to vote um, on primary election day. The second way that I think you also beat Herschel Walker um, you know, and it's not that he's incapable of it. This is a guy who, you know, graduated valedictorian of his high school class, but he does not look like he's prepared to sort of handle sort of the serious sort of task and the substantive task of being a U.S. senator is to beat him on substance um, and to sort of demonstrate that policy knowledge. And so, you know, in particular, Gary Black is pretty well positioned to be able to do that. And so Black is going to have to sort of show sort of, you know, his capability kind of beyond the agricultural sphere. Uh, but he's well positioned to be able to do that. Um, and so, you know, this is where I would do it. I would let it shine in interviews and I would let it shine in debates. Uh, and if, if if Walker is just going on his football prowess, he's likely to come up flat-footed in one of those debates. And if it doesn't happen in the primary, that's where I think most people think that Raphael Warnock would beat him on a debate stage in a general sort of election contest. Um, Greg Bluestein, it's going to be interesting. Um, Sam has already pointed out that Gary Black has waged an aggressive campaign against Herschel uh, Walker and Andra seconds that. Um, Latham Sadler has surprised people with his early fundraising uh, ability. Um, and here, so here's my real question, though, for you. At a certain point, do you see Herschel Walker being a very open uh, a candidate who will be out there in the in the in the field on a daily basis, really campaigning for this job, or is he going to 
uh, stay relatively quiet, stay behind the scenes, and find a way to do the campaign. For instance, is he going to do an interview with you? Is he going to do an interview with our folks at GPB? What, what kind of campaign can, can, does he have to run to win this thing? Yeah, I mean, we want him to come on this show, right? Um, we So far, we've seen it's been about two weeks, right? We've seen a very um, non-traditional campaign. He has not done interviews with, with objective press. He's, he's done very friendly interviews with Fox News. Um, with Sean Hannity, who who called him a friend multiple times in that in that interview, um, he has done um, not a, no no public campaign, mm-hmm. just some private fundraisers, um, and and some social media messages. But at first, wouldn't didn't even decline uh, didn't even comment on the Texas uh, the Supreme Court ruling involving or Supreme Court uh, not ruling, but but move not blocking the Texas abortion law. Um, so. We're seeing a very unconventional campaign, and it could be the pattern he follows. You know, he, look, he could be out there every every other day like Kelly Loeffler was um, last year, you know, with lots of media interviews, or he could run a very under-the-surface campaign relying solely on social media messaging and and, and TV appearances. Uh, that's that's the worry, frankly, for reporters who want to try to, you know, try to— learn who, how, who he is as a candidate, where he stands on issues, uh, those sorts of things. And we don't know that yet. This morning I tweeted that he's been running, uh, that he's been basically ignoring grassroots. And I got a text back from a statewide Republican candidate uh, in, in a past election cycle who said, yeah, but you know, that, <laughs> that that's a pretty good strategy sometimes. Look at Brad Raffensperger. And he was referring to Brad Raffensperger not going to a lot of those events in, in the 2018 cycle and still just dumping a lot of money on TV and winning. So there's there's definitely a path, especially if you've got the high name recognition and visibility that Herschel Walker does, especially with Trump's endorsement, to bypass a lot of those events that that we think as of, of must attend events and must do things like going to a debate and, and appearing appearing at forums and still winning the the nomination um, just because of your high name recognition. Michael, and then Sam. I preface my statements with the fact that, you know, a lifelong Democrat and I think whoever emerges uh, from the Republican primary will not be able to defeat uh, Reverend Warnock. But however, uh, with all uh, due respect, if uh, my friend Sam Olins will allow me, I'll step over into the Republican primary and say that anyone who underestimates Gary Black is making a huge mistake, to be quite honest with you. He, he's an excellent politician, and look what he's done already. He secured the endorsement. I can't remember Sam will know of a scores of uh, sheriffs in rural Georgia. So think about it. He's going to do well with farmers. He's lining up support at the grassroots level in rural Georgia among Republicans. So where does Herschel Walker go? And obviously he has to try to make inroads in the suburban uh, area of Atlanta, but that's when he's going to run into problems with college-educated white Republican and independent women because of the alleged uh, uh, issues around his treatment of women. So I just think, believe it or not, I think Gary Black is really uh, the front-runner in that race, and I don't know that Herschel Walker can overtake him, and especially if it goes to a runoff. So I think that... Uh the DeKalb CEO, CEOs are pretty darn good Republican consultants with his uh, statements. Um, I, I'll, I'll go back to Greg's uh, comment about Raffensperger. 
Um, he won due to the commercials. Uh, Mark Butler years ago won due to the commercials. I think in many ways, um, Reverend Warnock won due to the commercials, in particular, a cute dog. And um, I, I, when you got races for governor, senator, lieutenant governor, and secretary of state, front and center, I, I don't candidly think going to every Republican breakfast in every state fair and every grassroots initiative wins the race for you. I, I think it's candidly going to be TV and social media, uh, the ads on social media and, and TV. Um, and of course, that's millions and millions of dollars. But I, I think in this world we live in, statewide, that's really difficult door to door. It's social media and, and TV. And and, uh, and and I know there's someone that disagrees with me here, uh, but um, that's just my, my thoughts. Well, before we turn to Andra on that, I, I just want to point out, Sam Olins, that's an interesting statement coming from you, because I watched your two races for statewide uh, office, Attorney General of Georgia. You were relentless in traveling across Georgia, shaking every hand you could. You spent an enormous amount of time in South Georgia, where you were not known uh, compared to your Metro Atlanta uh, image, which was a good one based on your work as Cobb County's chairman. So to hear you say that tells me you understand how different politics is today from even the fairly recent past when you were uh, running for statewide office. So, so Bill, two points. Keep in mind, uh, my time was all in rural Georgia. Just as yeah. you stated, uh, it was not uh, in Metro Atlanta. And, and two, um, we spent back then over $600,000 a week on TV. So what I want to say here is that I think there's a difference between mobilization and thinking about media and thinking about persuasion. So television is effective for helping to boost a person's name identification. Um, there are claims that are going to be made in ads that could be persuasive one way or the other in terms of garnering support for a particular candidate. It's one thing to just support in your favor. It's another thing to get them out to vote. Television is actually not the most effective medium of actually getting people sort of like off of their off of their sofas and into the ballot box. So mobilization has to be a part of it. It doesn't have to be done by the candidates themselves. Uh, anybody on behalf of that campaign can, you know, be leveraged to mobilize and to get people to turn out to vote. The rallies don't seem to make a, a, an effect. So Alan did some kind of, for us, back of the envelope sort of analysis of sort of like, you know, uh, Trump, uh, whether or not he improved vote share in places where, you know, in areas where he uh, sort of held rallies in, in 2016 and, and, and didn't see much of an effect. So it's really hard to measure those kinds of things. But there's a lot. There are decades now worth of information on sort of what door knocking and phone, personal phone banking can actually do in terms of driving up voter turnout. So if you engage in that, if you just if you just need to get the numbers in order to get you over the certain numerical hump, assuming it's there, but your best thing to do that is with that type of grassroots um, type of activity. I'm not necessarily saying you should go to every fish fry um, because those are difficult to measure. And to the extent that we can measure them, we haven't seen much of an effect. All right. Andrew Gillespie gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. Um, when we come back. I'm not sure anyone maybe would have anticipated that one of the biggest issues suddenly uh, showing up in the 2022 election cycle 
is abortion. Uh, no matter how many um, uh, conservatives have wanted to uh, uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, it's not an issue that a lot of people on both sides of the aisle have wanted to bring to the forefront for all sorts of reasons, and we'll talk about some of them after these messages. Greg Bluestein, I think for sure Sam Olins, Mike Thurmond, and I, and maybe, I don't think uh, Andre Gillespie because uh, this is probably before her time here. Uh, we remember back in the day when Thomas B. Murphy was Speaker of the Georgia House, when people said uh, to him, conservatives in his Democratic caucus in those days, they wanted to look at abortion restrictions. Thomas B. Murphy, a conservative Democrat, said, we're, no, no, we're not going there. We do not need to touch that that uh, hot rail of politics. David Ralston, uh, the Republican Speaker of the House, has not been eager to take up uh, a draconian abortion measures uh, because everybody recognizes that it's an issue that is so complicated you can never be sure of how it's going to affect your voters one way or the other. And yet, Greg, here we are, the uh, Texas uh, abortion law, which the Supreme Court refused to uh, block in an emergency order, is putting abortion front and center in many races for 2022, yes? Yeah, and look, we saw how emotionally divisive this debate was in 2019 with the so-called heartbeat law uh, that, that narrowly passed the legislature. It was one of Governor Kemp's first major uh, policy moves uh, after he was elected governor narrowly over Stacey Abrams. And we're seeing it revive again. And my colleague Patricia Murphy has a great column on on how it's becoming a dividing line in, in congressional races in the U.S. Senate race we just talked about um, in 2022 with the, tech, with the Supreme Court's uh, decision not to intervene, not to block Texas's anti-abortion law from from taking effect, um, and you know you're seeing statements from congressional lawmakers, from Lucy McMath and Carolyn Bordeaux, um, condemning any any effort to to restrict abortion, and from their Republican challengers, um, you know, apl applauding the Supreme Court's uh, stance in the Senate race as well. You're hearing mostly criticism of of Senator Raphael Warnock, who's also a pastor, of course, at Ebenezer for serving as a pastor and also um, supporting abortion rights. So it is going to be a, a very major dividing line, just like I feel like if it got a little bit overshadowed. But um, around this time in 2019, we were talking about what a major issue abortion debate would be in, in 2020, and especially after the Supreme Court changes and the, and the new justices were added to the court that, that, that helped motivate, I think, voters from both sides of the aisle uh, to, to, to go out to the ballots. Uh, we do need to point out that, that the abortion law that finally passed in Georgia was a law that kind of got away from both Brian Kemp and David Ralston. They, yes, they were both uh, promoting uh, bills that would restrict abortion, uh, but, but conservatives uh, really went after them and pushed a law that was much more restrictive than what either of them had initially intended. But that nevertheless, Andra, uh, Greg Bluestein is right. Both Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux very quickly spoke out, saying that the Texas bill is dangerous. McBath wrote, uh, Bordeaux said, "This is what we've been warning would happen since the court, uh, Supreme Court, changed its composition." Meanwhile, uh, Jake Evans is running against McBath as a Republican. 
He wrote, as a Christian, I believe the fight for life is one of the most important battles of our generations. Rich McCormick, running against Bordeaux in the seventh, says a beating heart is one telltale sign of life. Purposefully ending life is inconsistent with his oath. This was a spokesperson speaking for him and duty as a physician. And then uh, even uh, Herschel Walker's uh, campaign weighed in and said he believes in life and supports uh, ending abortion. Andra? Well, I mean, I think that there are a lot of issues with the Texas bill, and I think there's a question of whether or not other states will try to replicate this, given what the Supreme Court has done. Um, um, the lawyers who are here on the panel can probably speak to this better than I can, but what the Supreme Court did was that they refused, basically, to issue an emergency injunction, saying that they didn't have standing because the way the law was written, um, it needs to kind of wind its way through the courts. And so people who would have to have standing would presumably be people who are going to be sued by the vigilantes who are now allowed to bring suit against abortion providers or anybody who aids and abets anybody in getting an abortion after six weeks um, in Texas. So, um, you know, and, and we saw sort of a, a local level sort of injunction where Planned Parenthood was sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, one of the parties in the case. So I think that there are lots of issues with this particular bill, even for uh, you know, those who uh, are, you know, would consider themselves pro-life. Uh, you know, in this particular case, the idea that citizens are deputized to go rat out people and could possibly be like compensated for that. So this the idea that there is a bounty is something that kind of takes this beyond the pale. And the part of the dangerous thing that could happen from this is that some people who feel like they're deputized to be able to do this might take matters into their own hands to try to stop an abortion. And so that actually brings even more violence into the situation. Um, and so I think that there are lots of externalities that maybe people thought about when they passed this law in Texas, but that are going to play out and that it does have that type of galvanizing effect that, yeah, that Republicans are going to try to use to target independent voters who are pro-life to kind of bring them back to their camp. But this is also the type of thing that could galvanize Democrats to say, look at what kinds of draconian things Republicans are going to do if they're in power. Sam? So, uh, Professor, you, you're doing pretty good as a lawyer there. <laughs> um, the um, the standing issue is a real issue from a legal perspective. It's a non-issue from a lay perspective, from a John Q. voter public citizen perspective, which means that the drafting of the law could be considered ingenious for um, the um, pro-life um, activists. So on the one hand, you've got a legal issue that no one cares about except the constitutional scholars. Uh, on the second area, you have um, a real issue with the 24 presidential campaigns. Because don't think for a second that some of these governors are not going to respond to the Texas law without an eye on their potential campaigns starting in a year from now to potentially include the Texas governor himself. Thirdly, uh, many people would argue the way that the U.S. Supreme Court is currently handling the shadow docket is very dangerous. Um, 
historically, those types of cases were stayed, requesting full briefing in the fall and a decision next June. But we've now seen at least five major issues decided by this court in the shadow docket rather than full briefing. And uh, it doesn't make a sense, difference what side of the aisle you're on. It's dangerous. Um, by the way, real quick, Michael, then I want to get you in here. Um, uh, we're going to post a uh, Jamel Bowie. I wanted to get to this in more depth, but we just don't have time for it. Jamel Bowie wrote a really interesting piece the other day in the New York Times about the shadow docket and how dangerous he, too, believes it is. We'll post a link to it on our social media. Michael, go ahead. Well, and following up on Sam, the fact that the chief justice sided uh, with the more progressive members of the court speaks volumes about how he viewed this uh, reliance on the shadow docket. Uh, also, don't forget that Abbott uh, is running for re-election himself in Texas. And so I'm back to what we talked about, how much of this is politics, how much of it is good policy is all politics. Not only has Abbott probably got an eye on 24, he also has an eye on 2022. Greg Bluestein, I can't help but wonder, you're more in touch with legislators these days. Um, I can't help but wonder if we're not, Sam already suggested governors uh, in some states may want to pick up on this as campaign uh, issues. I can't help but wonder whether the Georgia legislature might see a similar bill introduced in the next session here, although it'll be interesting because at that point, the court will have already heard the Mississippi case. They won't probably have given a ruling on it. Um, but but that case could outlaw abortion plain and simple. What do we think about Georgia lawmakers taking up a very similar bill in the next session? Yeah, I kind of checked in on it to see if, if there was appetite for um, basically mirroring the Texas legislation because the Georgia law deviates, especially when it comes to personhood. And I didn't pick up on any sort of appetite for that. Um, the governor's office um, and, and key lawmakers all all essentially said that that fight's behind us. We, we're we're going to go through with uh, the current version of Georgia law, which is still pending in the courts, rather than trying to embrace the Texas law. And remember, it was a very narrow passage a couple years ago, so there's no guarantee that in this dynamic it would pass again. All right, we are completely out of time, Greg Bluestein. You get the last word for the show, but thank you, Greg. Thank you, Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, Andre Gillespie. This is, again, one of those shows when I wish I could just sit back and listen to the smart things you all had to say today. Thank you so much for being part of Political Rewind. We're back, of course, with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask when you're inside, and tell your friends who haven't been vaccinated, this is as good a time as any to do it. Help protect all of us out there. See you all tomorrow.